there. It's PNN for Sunday, November 29, 2020. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. And tonight you've got a whole lot of me, a whole lot of me talking about uh, stuff that happened over Thanksgiving and uh, revolt and revolution. I think this is going to be a really fun time for everybody, um, essentially. And we also have at the bottom of the next hour, Janine Maloff with more on the Trump coup. And I want to share with you what she said to me. She says, Trump's clumsy coup is not a joke or a tantrum, but a premeditated legal strategy that should warrant the disbarment of every attorney involved. He could still possibly steal the election unless everyone remains alert and vigilant. Um, and so she's going to presenting, going to be presenting some analysis from Marjorie Cohn uh, and others in what I uh, am calling prescriptives. You know, so if this is the thing that is happening, these are the things that should happen in response. This is what is prescribed in order to fix the thing. Um, okay, I got a few. I just got a few thoughts before we get into things. So you know, you know what that means. That means uh, that means we got to hear this. It's, it's the weekly beat. You. Okay, so Thanksgiving. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, Thanksgiving during a pandemic is a uh, a very interesting thing. I'll tell you what, I, uh, I I cooked just about as much as I would any other year, uh, which means um, you've got two bread machines going and you've got cranberry sauce making and you're throwing the turkey in the oven and making stuffing, which is the most um, uh, labor intensive thing, plus the mashed potatoes, plus the gravy, you know, it's just all of it, you know, and you got to make the cherry pie. It's just all of it. Um, and, uh, so of course I threw my back out, you know, because I, I overdid it. And, uh, so that's all been fun. And, uh, we didn't have a choice. We had to, we had to see family. We absolutely had to see family. Everyone's been quarantined, like locked down, super locked down. We've all, all of us. Uh, so it was six people total. Um, and, uh, uh, specifically locked down for Thanksgiving. I don't know what it's like in your family, but in our family, the holidays are are secular, sacred goodness. Like you do the holidays, you just do them. You just do the holidays. You're expected to do them. Um, and, you know, I realized something uh, being over at uh, the in-laws. I realized that uh, really for the first time, it really hit home for me how much harder this is on uh, on the, uh, my, my in-laws, you know, who are a generation older, of course, uh, it's a lot harder on them than it is on, um, me and my husband, you know, we've, we've got work and we've got, uh, things that we were pursuing. We're already kind of introverts. So, uh, quarantine isn't a huge thing for us, but they're not like that. They're very social and their social bonds are, um, are really, uh, you know, uh, 
I have a hard time understanding it myself because I'm kind of an introvert and I could just spend, you know, a lot of time by myself and not even care. But, um, but they're not like that. And half the world is not like me, you know, like there's introverts and there's extroverts and, uh, you know, I can be extroverty, uh, but really I'm, I'm most comfortable when, when I've just got, you know, me, myself and my dogs and my husband around like that's, that's a, that's the deal. Uh, so they were overjoyed to see people. I mean, just ridiculously overjoyed. Now they're, they're actually trying to do stuff that is um, quarantine friendly. So they're having zoom uh, happy hour, like once a week with some friends and uh, the father-in-law goes fishing, you know, that's not something that puts you in contact with people. You know, there's they're they're still maintaining some amount of some semblance of of social life, but this was in a safe distance kind of way. But this was very important to them, and uh, so we're like hanging out. And um, I want to share with you something that my mother-in-law said because, like every holiday, something gets said that sticks in your head. And this this time, it was a uh, we sat at teeny, teeny, tiny tables outside. So, you know, it was like, you know, just three people here and three people over there, that kind of thing. Um, and it was really nice with the, with the breeze and everything. So we were never really like inside in an enclosed place anyway, but mother, uh, mother-in-law says to me, she says, uh, you know, I got a box over there that I want to give you. That is, uh, some stuff from, uh, your husband's uh, when, when he was a baby, it's like baby, baby book and stuff like that. And in there is the bill from when he was born. And I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. And uh, we actually forgot to pick it up on our way out. But um, she said that, so he was born in 1970 and the bill that they paid was $315. And she said, that the $15 was for a C-section, that the line item was that for, for $15 was, was C, for a C-section was $15. And so I, uh, I just, I, 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 I had to get up from the table because, you know, as somebody who is fighting for Medicare for all, I'm really aware of, how much it costs to go have a baby in a hospital now. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I looked up and I, I already knew it was bad, but I looked up what is, what a C-section costs uh, nowadays. And the bill for an unplanned C-section in the United States, it, the one that I found online uh, was $103,000. $103,000. Now I knew, I knew that, um, that it wasn't going to be no $15. You know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think what was important for me there was, was just the moment of realization. You know, I wasn't expecting to, uh, to be hit with this wave of emotion that I felt and what I felt in that moment was the unfairness and the injustice 
that my generation and everyone younger, we've been treated like an ATM for freaking big business, for, for hospitals, for pharma, for, uh, for uh, educational institutions, for banks. They've, they've been treating us like a natural resource and just hooking us up to a hose and like sucking us dry. I know people who didn't have children because they couldn't afford it. And when you say they couldn't afford it, number one, they didn't have insurance. I didn't have insurance until I was in my mid thirties and it's kind of hard to have a kid in your mid thirties. I mean, just natural, I mean, just having to do with your biology. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, other things, kind of I my my situation is different from other people's situation but I know plenty of other people who didn't have children because they couldn't afford it and the people that I know who did have children made incredible sacrifices to have kids or their parents did um so anyway that's what I learned on Thanksgiving this year And uh, you know what? You always learn something. You always learn something every year when you sit down with with family and, uh, um, you know, hang out. But I think this year, especially with the pandemic, I think people were as my my sense of things was they were especially uh, they were in this kind of like reflective kind of mode. You know, there was there were some interesting things that, you know, people wanted to talk about real shit. And that was some real shit. It was so real I had to excuse myself because I, I, my, my throat just went, Clark! you know, like I just I couldn't breathe. And I was like, okay, I might cry, you know, $315. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. You could actually live a life in 1970. Everything else sucked. Well, music was okay. Um, drugs were pretty good. Um, okay, so you got the music, you got the drugs, you got the cheap everything, you could get a job. Yeah, okay, so it was pretty damn good in the 70s. Let's just establish that. And things really started to suck um, when Reagan got in office in 1980. How about that? Um, okay, so that's my headspace. That's where I'm at right now um, this week. And uh, it's in that vein that I recorded a couple of pieces for your consumption this week. And uh, let's see if I can find them. Yes, I did upload them. All right. This first piece is, uh, this first piece will introduce the second piece. This is a two-parter. And these are more in the same vein. This is uh, uh, musings from the Thanksgiving season. Uh, and I don't know why, but I, I just, when, when, I, when I went looking for reflective, you know, uh, deep thoughts, you know, deep thoughts for this time of year, I kept coming back to Chris Hedges. Like, I, and I don't know why I did this, yeah, but, I, but I just did. It just seemed like, the stuff that he's been doing recently really spoke to where we're at right now at our moment in history. And he's a writer and a lecturer who is, who who stays acutely aware of history. And I think that that's kind of what I was looking for uh, in, in reflections on Thanksgiving 2020 is where are we in history right now? What is this moment? And, uh, what is the significance of this moment? And so 
what does that tell us we need to do, you know, normatively? What, what ought we be doing here now because of where we are in history? And, and make no mistake, it's a big point in history where, you know, we're saying goodbye to, to Donald Trump. We're saying hello again to Joe Biden. And so what does all that mean? You know, what, where is that going to take us? So that's, that's what I wanted to present to you this evening. So uh, please enjoy this, um, this first uh, part one. We'll be back in just a few for part two. Hey there, good to be back. You know, I, because it's Thanksgiving, I uh, have been reaching way deep down into my thought pockets and searching for some big difficult ideas to kind of bring forth and talk about. You know, we talk about politics a lot here, and we talk about it on the surface. Uh, we don't go as surfacey as maybe you would find on uh, cable news. You know, we're not all about the, the horse race. But, you know, because it's a a holiday weekend, and this particular holiday, Thanksgiving, as per usual, I became a little contemplative. And uh, I've been trying to challenge myself. And so here are some of the things that have come across my radar. Maybe they're not things that are in the news, but I think that there are things that are very important to people right now. And the first thing is this article that oddly came across my Apple News uh, feeder. This is from CNN. came up today. It says, in Japan, more people died from suicide last month than from COVID in all of 2020. Now, first of all, you got to be clear, Japan did not have a big COVID surge the way the rest of the world did. And the things that Japan did to make sure that COVID didn't uh, catch fire the way it did in the rest of the world have been the subject of things that I've talked about here and also of, of much research and debate. So this opening sentence here that that in Japan, more people died from suicide last month than from COVID in all of 2020, you have to take into account that uh, that not many people have died in Japan of, of COVID just yet, period. Now, here's the lead. Here's the lead of the story. Um, it, it's following a, a particular writer, and I'm going to try to say her name, Eriko... Kobayashi. Ariko Kobayashi has tried to kill herself four times. The first time, she was just 22 years old with a full-time job in publishing that didn't pay enough to cover her rent and grocery bills in Tokyo. She says, I was really poor. Um, and she spent three days unconscious in a hospital after the incident. Now, at 43, Kobayashi has written books on her mental health struggles and has a steady job at an NGO. But the coronavirus is bringing back the stress she used to feel. Now, let's pull back a second. This article is right, right off, right off the bat. 
puts down suicide as associated somehow with something sociological rather than psychological. And they're comparing it to or associating it with COVID. And then in the lead of the story, they talk about how this particular writer 20-some years ago tried to kill herself for the first time because she was impoverished and had had suicidal ideation over the years connected to her economic situation, whether she was uh, you know, had a, whether she had enough to live in the city in which she lived. And then the article goes on, instead of looking at the sociology or the economics of this particular situation, it looks at the psychology and the mental health. Now, I talked about this last week, and I think it's really worth uh, revisiting for this article and for a number of other reasons. Um, it's no coincidence that one of the fathers, shall we say, of sociology became, uh, garnered that status from uh, researching and analyzing statistics and facts around suicide, and that's Emile Durkheim. So there's three modern, three big people who are considered the progenitors of modern sociology, and that's Emile Durkheim, Karl Marx, and uh, Max Faber. And uh, Durkheim, I think, is well, he's kind of underappreciated, and I know I didn't appreciate him the first time I, w I encountered his work in college. I mean, uh, I can look back at my notebooks, and I can guarantee you that I wrote his name as Dorkheim every single time I had to uh, look at his stuff. I just thought he was dour, and I thought he wasn't any fun. I mean, you put him next to Karl Marx and Max Weber, and, you know, it's like, uh, why do we have to bother with this guy? However, Durkheim is super important to our moment right now. And I feel like uh, Durkheim's analysis put together with what, what Marx was, was critiquing in capitalism is super juicy, meaty goodness that can help us understand what we are facing right now. So last week, you know, I'd, I talked about how I was shocked that people in my kind of social media tribe had been sharing thoughts of despair in the background, you know, in, in direct message groups and so on, and are very afraid of what is getting ready to happen once the uh, housing, the eviction moratorium runs out at the end of the year. And so... What I'm hearing from people is not mental health issues. What I am hearing from people is a what what Emil Durkheim would call a, a sense of anomie. Um, anomie is 
defined as a societal condition defined by an uprooting or breakdown of any moral values, standards, or guidance for individuals to follow. Anomy is like alienation, um, but it's a, it's a little bit more uh, singularized, you might say. Uh, anomy may evolve from a conflict of belief systems and causes breakdown of uh, social bonds between an individual and their community. Um, so, for example, alienation in a person that can progress into a dysfunctional inability to integrate with your world around you, so on and so forth. Now, to me, that's what uh, this writer Kobayashi, that's what she's describing here, is an inability or, or being blocked from being able to integrate in a city where she can uh, ply her trade. You know, she's, she's a, a, a writer and an editor, so she has to live in a city where there is a um, publishing industry. So for her, that's Tokyo. And yet, Doing what it is that she does, which is writing and editing, she can't make enough money to live in the only city where you can do that work. Okay, so that is a sense of, you know, Marx would have a whole different approach to this. Uh, Marx would, would, you know, talk about alienation in a different way. The way Durkheim comes, comes at this is uh, this is how a person becomes divorced from their community if they're being uh, um, pushed out either economically or with regard to normative um, values. So let me give you an example of that. When a person experiences anomy as a um, result of conflicting moral values or normative values, rather, um, and normative is just like saying you ought to. Uh, so, so if you have this established culture that says you ought to be this, you know, you you got to be this, or else we're going to shun you. Then, then that is uh, that's that kind of enemy. So, an example of that would be, you know, somebody who um, doesn't have the uh, like, let's say, sexual orientation that the church that their parents belong to uh, uh, demands of people, right? So then, you know, you become alienated from that initial primary family grouping because the primary family grouping is going to adhere to that orthodoxy and they're like, you know, you don't want any part of them, they don't want any part of you, that's alienation. This kind of alienation I think is much more uh, uh, this, this uh, anomie that has to do with economics I think is worthy of being identified as a trend. And so that's, that's why I'm talking about it. So we established this last week that, um, that the economic crisis that we're facing is so dire that it's driving people to this kind of despair that um, literally threatens people's lives. And this is, this is a very important point, that people can die of a lot of things. You know, uh, they say that um, heart disease and cancer are leading causes of um, death in the United States. And they often bring up um, the opioid crisis as another form of 
um, you know, health issue that is that, that contributes to the death rate. Well, think for a moment what actually opioid addiction is. And to me, if if you're not thinking about opioid addiction in terms of um, alienation and enemy and um, being having despair because there's no way to take care of yourself in the place where you live and largely the opioid epidemic as we know it is located in rural America and in the places where NAFTA has you know, is hollowed out, places where you could graduate high school and go get a job, you know, places like East Tennessee, where I used to live for 10 years. Uh, these are the places that are being eaten up or have been eaten up and hollowed out by the opioid crisis. This is also, uh, this was also seen in Russia when the Soviet Union fell and the entire country was going through this rapacious neoliberal uh, rapid transformation where the oligarchs were just uh, privatizing everything, and you know, nobody was nobody was able to make any money. Nobody was able to take care of themselves. They also saw a huge uh, increase in people uh, drinking themselves to death and uh, um, having having certain kinds of addictions. So, op- dying from opioids is a death of despair, and this is something that that Bernie Sanders used to also talk talk about is uh, deaths of despair. I actually have way too many people that I've known in the past who, you know, and and this can be attributed to a, to a couple different things, but who I believe, uh, you know, killed themselves slowly uh, through uh, uh, drinking themselves to death. And, you know, my, my, uh, my grandfather was um, headed in that direction until I think uh, my grandmother stepped in and, and you know made it so that he couldn't leave the house and go get a drink. I think that was really what stopped it. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about people who died in their 40s and shouldn't shouldn't be dead right now. They shouldn't be in the ground because, but they are because of uh, you know not that kind of suicide that we think of where you, you know, uh, do something really quick, you know, like a like a, a a gunshot or something or take sleeping pills. No, this is this is a suicide over the course of 20 years, you know, where you drink your despair or you um consume your despair in um in uh, in, in the form of of drugs. And um, we also saw this in the early to mid-90s before the dot-com boom. There was a lot of talk about the, uh, you know, this huge increase in um, heroin addiction. And again, back in East Tennessee, and I would have left East Tennessee by about 95, uh, there were way too many people that I knew from from college and from the scene back in those days who had succumbed to heroin and heroin overdoses, and I was just like, what the f- 
fuck? How where where is this coming from? Why why is this even happening? Anyhow, you know, these are these are people who in other times would have like I said been able to graduate high school and go and get a job at a factory or, you know, be part of a functioning economic unit and were unable to do that uh, because there was just everything was was getting hollowed out at this point. Now, to be to be fair, in terms of East Tennessee, things were already getting hollowed out before NAFTA came along. It was already pretty hard. Uh, there industry was was leaving uh, the the biggest city up there that had a big industrial base was was called Kingsport and it was already experiencing uh, quite a uh, contraction and another area that was also experiencing contraction at the time was Elizabethton which is uh, kind of closer to North Carolina than than Virginia um, but anyway the point of that the point of that is to say that we are at a point right now in, in American history and I think in world history as well where big uh, sweeping change is warranted because the despair that people are facing is uh, equally enormous and overwhelming. And I think that's obvious. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about suicide like two weeks in a row if it weren't for the fact that uh, material conditions on the ground are so dire that um, that this discussion is warranted. So I want to turn your attention too to uh, some interesting research uh, from the University of California in uh, Los Angeles and Johns Hopkins, Boston University, Wake Forest School of Law, that found that lifting state moratoriums and allowing eviction proceedings to continue caused as many as 433,700 excess cases of COVID-19 and 10,700 additional deaths, 10,000, almost 11,000 additional deaths between March and September in the United States. And to quote from the from the study, it says, quote, when people are evicted, they often move in with friends and family, and that increases your number of contacts. If people have to enter a homeless shelter, these are indoor places that can be quite crowded. And I would add to that, they're crowded and they're they're unsafe in normal times, but during a pandemic, that is not where you want to be, and it certainly wouldn't be where you would want to wind up with with the entire family, with with your kids. And so, the the reason why this came to my attention is I subscribe to Yasha Levine's uh, Substack, and if you follow Yasha, you know that uh, him and his pregnant wife have been facing eviction. This is not tied to losing income, by the way. This is their landlord uh, just uh, taking advantage of the situation right now and trying to kick everyone out to sell the place. Or it's a, The landlord is trying to increase the amount of money that they can make on this particular property. So they're this has nothing to do with the Levines actually losing an income. But they've been facing eviction. They were supposed to go to eviction court the day before Thanksgiving, and they just found out uh, um, that that has been postponed until the end of January. 
Now, it's the end of December when the National Eviction Moratorium runs out. And uh, what is called for now, okay, so it took all of that, we're getting all of that that I just said to here. The moment that Joe Biden gets into office, he's got to do something about the housing crisis. And this time, you know, like last time in 2009, when the prior Obama-Biden administration, uh, quote, did something about uh, the housing crisis at that time, what they did was they bailed out the banks. So what I would assume would happen right now is uh, Biden gets into office the end of January 2021, and what they propose to do, because his cabinet's going to be full of McKenzie people, what they're going to propose to do is give a bunch of money to landlords, right? If before what they did was give the money to the banks, what they're going to do now is give the money to landlords and probably, you know, an, another chunk of cash to the banks. And by the way, these are people that have already been bailed out once, small businesses, uh, people who have, you know, set up these these kinds of entities that would own property and rent out property, they've already been bailed out once with the PPP loans, okay? All right. These are extreme times. People are experiencing extreme dislocation. They're experiencing extreme alienation, extreme anomie. And that means that we absolutely have to have the kinds of responses and programs that are proportionate to the despair that people are, are experiencing right now. Now, I know some people are not going to be happy to reminded to be reminded that uh, Joe Biden is not a great change agent. Um, if you look at his record, and you look at his record honestly, uh, you're going to find that he's been for his entire career, a tool of credit card companies, the war industry, and, uh, and similar interests. Uh, Joe Biden is not going to change. He's not going to waltz into the White House and sit in the Oval Office and become FDR. We have to demand that change. And to be honest, we will probably demand quite a bit of change, and he will summarily dismiss it. And we have to do it none the less. And God, I know, I know we're all tired of it. I, I know that, that the left is fairly demoralized, you know, not in small part due to the uh, machinations of uh, Barack Obama to push Bernie Sanders out of the uh, presidential race. And combined with that, Bernie Sanders... Uh, capitulating to that pressure at a certain point. However, we don't have a choice. We don't. We just don't. Uh, we have got to go to bat this time, and this time we aren't going to have these big fire-starting kinds of, of uh, triggers like the murder of an innocent person to respond to. Instead, we have to muster this energy to respond to this despair that is just roiling below the surface. Now, never underestimate the, the power of people having nothing left to lose. And, uh, you know, with this economic depression 
maybe we could call it the Great Great Depression this time, with this economic depression that is uh, looming over us, there are going to be record numbers of people with nothing left to lose. So let's examine, just for a moment, let's examine what it actually takes. What is the mindset? Where do you have to be in your mind and in your body and in your soul and in your spirit and all that stuff? Where do you have to be in order to take all of this on? And I think that the answer to that is uh, is sublime madness and calling back to how we started out you know this is a a thanksgiving weekend and stuff and i'm the kind of person who casts about trying to uh you know place where we are in this moment you know I'm, i'm always thinking about where we are in history right now as the news is happening you know news is history's first draft as they say Uh, So I went to try to find how you respond, how I wanted to answer this question. And this is what I found, and this is what I want to share with you. This is just a few minutes of Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges, who used to be with Truth Truth Dig before they shuttered, um, has a show called On Contact that uh, is on uh, RT. he is all over YouTube. He's got all kinds of – he's very active. He's still publishing a, a ton of stuff. And um, Rising has him on a, a, a whole lot. But I stumbled across this particular lecture and this particular uh, passage of the lecture that I think is super pertinent to what we're talking about right here. So here goes. Let me just say uh, I, have, I have to put this on here Um just to say that Chris Hedges delivers most of his lectures in this uh, cadence that I completely associate with uh, uh, liturgy in a church. Okay, so whenever I hear him speaking, you know, just at a lectern, you know, pre- uh, presenting a lecture to people, I'm just, I'm just thrown back to, you know, when I was a kid sitting in the Catholic church and just being like, oh God, why do I have to be here? And this manner in which he speaks is to me very um, liturgical Uh, so but here goes it is only those who find the courage to peer into the molten pit who can minister to the suffering of those around them they will be infected with this sublime madness as Hannah Arendt wrote in the origins of totalitarianism the only morally reliable people are not those who say this is wrong or this should not be done, but those who say, I can't. They know that as Immanuel Kant wrote, if justice perishes, human life on earth has lost its meaning. And this means that like Socrates, we must come to a place where it is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong, no matter what happens around us. We can surmount despair, not by ignoring reality, but by responding radically to it. And this includes acts of civil disobedience, including jail time. In these acts, we become fully human. One of the only coherent philosophical positions is revolt, Camus wrote. It is a constant confrontation between man and his obscurity 
It is not aspiration, for it is devoid of hope. That revolt is the certainty of a crushing fate without the resignation that ought to accompany it. Those we must follow now will be as ornery and mad as all prophets. They will call us to lives of steadfast defiance. They will be burnt children. Okay, I, I don't know about the burnt children part, but what he says here about uh, the only moral position in this moment is revolt. I know about that. And I know that, uh, that uh, we have to be responding radically to justice. But now here's the thing. We've already been doing that, you know, with the uh, Black Lives Matter uprising. I think that what you've been seeing there, I want to reframe it. I think that what you've been seeing there hasn't been uh, uh, so much just triggered in the moment. I think that like what Chris Hedges says here is that these are people who are responding radically to justice and they are doing so because it is that their revolt is the only moral position to take. It is a radical affirmation of who you are in yourself as a person existentially. It's not about... It certainly isn't about looting, and, and for sure that's, that's what the cable news wants your parents to think about things. But those of us who know, know better. It's not about that. When you go out and you push back on these things, it is a radical affirmation of your moral position, of yourself, of who you are existentially as a person in society as a part of humanity, as a part of civilization, that is what we are saying. That is what we are doing when we go out to protest. It isn't about being seen. It isn't about getting on the news. It isn't about clout chasing. It is a radical affirmation of humanity. And that's what these times call for a radical affirmation of who we are and what we are supposed to be about. That's a normative statement, what we ought to do, because we're not doing it now. We're definitely not doing the things that we ought to be doing now. Okay, this is a good stopping point because there is another turn to this that I want to share with you. And so we are going to take a short break, and we will be right. Okay, here's the important bits. We need to talk about what happens after Trump. 2021, January 2018, after Trump. What happens? What do people talk about? What's going to be on our mind? We're not going to have Donald Trump as the subject of every conversation. We don't have the luxury for that. And we got we to gotta turn our attention to the stuff that, that is really pressing right now. And to my mind, that is... Uh, 
the social contract. Uh, Biden has to do more than just restore conviviality and commodiousness in Washington. That's not what we need him for. We don't need someone who's going to be a backslapping nice guy that everybody likes. We need someone who can restore America's social democracy. Everything that I just said before about anomie and alienation and the despair the people are feeling, that is the result of the fraying of our social contract. Now, Trump, let's accept the fact that Trump was never the threat that people made him out to be. And by people, I mean the corporate interests behind cable news. It made for a just riveting television to inflate him to this, uh, you know, threat to civilization, right? It did. I mean, people, people couldn't stop watching. I mean, remember all that Russia stuff? Like, oh, my God, Russia's going to turn off your heat, and Russia's going to hack missiles somewhere, and something, something, and we'll all die. You know, people couldn't turn it off, and they still can't turn it off. People still can't stop talking about Trump, and I'm begging you, you have to stop talking about Trump. You have to start looking towards what we need to do right now. Now, uh Let's just be really clear. Trump uh, was a narcissist. He had ADHD, literally cannot read. All right. He had these these shortcuts to being a president, and that was white supremacy. Uh, But still more people of color came out for him in 2020 than came out in 2016. He had the hyper-masculinity that a lot of people have been talking about. Not that he's like a super masculine dude, but he it, the, the leadership style that he his his affectation was of hypermasculinity and we need to talk about this at some point that is that figures in a lot into the uh south florida latino um uh embrace of of trump and uh, actually if you look at a at a map of florida where where the hot spots are for Trump support among Latinos, Osceola County, which should be blue, should be bright, bright blue. Osceola County was, if it wasn't for Miami, Osceola County would be the big hotspot for Latino support for Donald Trump. Okay. And that has to do with the strong man kind of, uh, you know, generalissimo, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're the biggest, we're the best, we're going to go kick some butt, you know, like there's this, it, it's, it's reflexive. It is very similar to that kind of, you know, dually truck affectation that, you know, our uh, redneck brethren have in, um, in other parts of Central Florida. Say for instance, Ocala. Uh, it, it's it's very similar. That's that's what I'm saying. And uh, you know, a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort was spent by NGOs in Osceola County specifically, and a lot was spent in South Florida specifically, just to do turnout, just doing turnout. So if you're going into those counties where Donald Trump is already appealing to voters 
to the voters that you're targeting, to the Latino voters. If you're if you're going in there and doing GOTV with these voters who are already turned on to Trump because of this hyper masculinity, because of this strongman affectation, then what you are doing in effect was turning out Trump's people. Okay, you know I think that the conversation that needs to be had around Latino voters is is multifaceted, and I'm just giving you one side of it right now because it kind of uh, aligns with this one piece of, of Trump's appeal. And one of the shortcuts that he used in order to be a leader was this hyper-masculinity. Now, the only thing that stopped him was the pandemic. As a matter of fact, uh, this is recognized by by just normal people like my 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 family remember my family told me over thanksgiving they they said well you know trump threw it away trump threw it away the way that he responded to the pandemic as if it wasn't any kind of thing you know uh at first as if it was a hoax even uh that was his great mistake that's what he did that's how he threw it away and I thought, wow, that's a that's a pretty good analysis. That that works for me. Um, so I want to play something for you, and this is super important. It's a few minutes. It's um, George Monbiot. Um, this is a clip from Double Down News, and uh, we're going to pick this up. Um, I'm going to let him uh, lay out the uh, terrain here. It's great that Donald Trump has gone. I mean, he was a menace. He was a very, very dangerous man with autocratic tendencies. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to... I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. Prepared to carry out a kind of coup to remain in the White House. But it's essential that we understand how he got there in the first place. And how he got there was through mainstream political failure. You might have hoped when Barack Obama came to power that things were really going to change. And he talked about change and he talked about hope and he had a big political movement backing him. But in office, he was supremely disappointing. He completely folded in the face of financial power. He bailed out the banks at the expense of ordinary homeowners. He failed to sustain the big social movement that got him into power in the first place. He thought he could govern without them. In fact, he cut them loose and he became presidential. He tried to play the game within the political system and it swallowed him. And because of that political failure and the much wider political failure, which long predated Obama, of the convergence really between the Democrats and the Republicans, just as we've seen elsewhere in the world, around a set of neoliberal prescriptions, remove a lot of regulations, you cut taxes for the rich, you allow wealth and power really to overcome democracy, people began to see politics as not delivering for them. They saw it as the yabba of a detached elite above their heads. It was into that vacuum of political effectiveness that Trump stormed in and said, look, I'm anti-politics. I'm the opposite of all that yabba. I'm the guy who talks direct to you, the ordinary person. I'm on your side. Never mind the fact that this guy is one of the most exploitative and fraudulent people in U.S. business. Trump could just rip through the ordinary political fabric and establish himself as this demagogue, this autocrat, 
And in a way, and I know this sounds strange, we were really lucky to get Trump because he was a really useless autocrat. He was a lousy, would-be dictator. He was all over the place. He was chaotic. He was impetuous. And what Trump's presidency exposed is that the checks and balances which are supposed to exist in US politics aren't actually that. On the contrary, the country is constitutionally padlocked. It's locked into a whole load of totally dysfunctional political arrangements, like the composition of the Senate, where every state sends two senators, regardless of whether it's got 60 million people or 600,000 people. You've got the Citizens United decision, which says there should be no limit to the amount of money that political lobbyists can spend, which means that the US has effectively been captured by the money of billionaires and other oligarchs. You've got the totally politicized nature of the Supreme Court, which means that a sitting president can determine political outcomes for many years after that person has left office. And all these constitutional lock-ins far from acting as checks and balances against a demagogue in the White House, actually help to give that person their power. And so my fear is this, that even though it's clear that Biden is better than Trump, because he is such a centrist, because he is so timid, because he plays the Washington game, because he goes along with financial power, Biden could pave the way for something much worse than Trump for someone who wins a second term, for someone who then sets in motion a completely new politics in the US, a politics which starts with democracy and ends up with dictatorship. What this is about is about the power of money, a fight between the people and the money. We need a new kind of politician which actually rises from the people and speaks directly for the people. A politician like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or like Cory Bush. These. All right, I'm going to stop it right there. Um, I actually meant to stop it a few seconds earlier, but anyway. Um, because, because, uh, and I know you're going to be thrilled about this. We're stopping it right there because we are going to turn now back to Durkheim, or Durkheim, uh, because this is very important. But we're going to get there in a second. Um, <clears throat> So what comes after Trump? If, if Joe Biden is unable to restore social democracy in the United States, in America, what is going to happen is that a real competent tyrant will take office. They will be a two-term tyrant. And I believe, going back to Chris Edges too, I believe that that tyrant will likely come from uh, – Christian conservatism from 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 the fundamental movement, the, the same people who are are praying for Trump, you know, those those types. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I lived for 10 years in the mountains in East Tennessee. This is the uh, this is the buckle of the Bible Belt. This is the the most intense concentration of crazy conservatives that you can actually imagine. Um, oh, that's where. Rick moved to the founder of, of the show. Um, it is also a very beautiful place. And there is also an amazing uh, uh, emerging left there. Um, and there's also an amazing uh, historic left there. People who were involved in unions. I mean, people who would have been um, 
you know, like, like my ex-father-in-law and, you know, people of the, the boomer generation and before, and really the greatest generation, the people who were worked on the ra- railroads and worked in, uh, in union capacity in the, uh, w- what unions there were in the industry up there. These people were freaking radical and they were radicalized by FDR. They were radicalized when uh, electricity was brought to the mountains uh, through TVA, through the Tennessee Valley Authority, where they built dams and uh, created cheap electricity for everybody. I mean, you don't think about this. I didn't think about this uh, until I'd been up there for a while and um, grew up a bit and had some experience. But it's fairly recent history that people had electricity up in the mountains. And by fairly recent, I mean like the 50s. Like, that's not that long ago. That's that's within a lifetime. So anyway, um, it, it was within the reach of the memory of people who were alive. So the kind of tyrant that can uh, take advantage of a, um, of a failure to restore social democracy is going to come out of this fundamentalist movement. And Chris Hedges wrote about that in his book, uh, American Fascists. And Hedges is keen to point out about the Christian right. He's keen to point out uh, using uh, Dorkheim's uh, framework uh, that the Christian right is actually a death cult. He says, uh, this is Chris Hedges in response to a question in an interview that is on Salon.com. Hedges says uh, of the Christian right, it is a death cult. With the rupturing of social bonds and a sense of place within society, Trump's followers in the Christian right invest their energy in self-destructive behaviors, both as individuals and societies. And this is where Durkheim comes in. He made the astute observation about right-wing groups that these type of groups seek the annihilation of others because at the core, they are driven by a desire for self-annihilation. These are big philosophical and psychological uh, categories. But um, there are things that you can also see in pop culture. So, like, you could actually say that, like, the Dark Knight, the Batman series, the Dark Knight is is a, uh, uh, the, as a superhero, the Dark Knight represents a, an annihilation of self because, you know, Bruce Wayne becomes this other thing and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, that's one way that you can look at it. Continuing on with uh, Chris Hedges, he says, we see that throughout American society with the opioid crisis, suicides, which are at the highest among white middle-aged men and other types of addictions, such as morbid obesity and gambling, these types of behaviors are all in response to the breakdown of social bonds and a sense of place and meaning within society. And that's what I've been talking about for the last week or so with the people that I know in my back channels who have been talking about despair and been talking about, uh, you know, the morbid stuff, the stuff that, that, um, that you have to look at. You have to, you, you have to go to that place of sublime madness to be able to understand it. And in order to respond to it appropriately, okay, you have to revolt. Now I want to say one thing about the, uh, and this is just just tangentially, about the white working class. Um, 
you know, Bernie Sanders was able to garner a lot of support in these Rust Belt states and in the South and in rural areas where uh, where you wouldn't have expected him to do so well. Now, these are the same kinds of people who responded to TVA, to Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, they're, uh, you know, people who, ha- who are experiencing NOME and alienation. They're the kind of people who are falling victim to despair of um, deaths of despair. And, you know, they're experiencing the opioid crisis like no one else in the country. And uh, in this vein that we have to understand that when like cable news and the mainstream media says that, um, that the reason we lost uh, house seats, like those two seats in South Florida, and the reason why that we're fighting so hard to take over the Senate is because quote, the party has moved too far to the left. That is unmitigated horseshit. Okay, and I've covered that in the past, but um, Chris Hedges says that uh, that this is another sociological term. He says this is self-fulfilling prophecy. Insiders who tell themselves such things are completely out of touch. He says most of the people sitting around those newsrooms do not leave their studios. They might as well be locked up in Versailles or the or the Forbidden City in China. They do not have a clue about the real suffering, pain, and social and moral decay that has infected the lives of the country for you know over half a century. Really, uh, the reality is never reported on because those people are looking for advertising dollars. They have rendered all these suffering and struggling people in America invisible, which is, of course, only adds to the anger and deep distrust of the media. Polling for 2020 election did not capture what is really going on. We were pretty much out of touch. And so what you see on social media a lot is all this pushback like, oh, you can't support uh, um forgiving student loans or you can't support Medicare for all because that would help the white working class and the white working class are bad people. They're racist. They're the kind of people that voted for Trump and God knows we can't help them. And so what did Joe Biden do? Joe Biden's campaign strategy was to cater to neoconservative Republicans. Uh, His campaign was devoid of ideas or real policy prospects. It was just, to talk to those suburban Republican voters and say that, you know, Trump is a uh, day class A. He's uh, not of us. You know, he's not like you. He's, um, he's, he's, he's grotesque. He's, he's awful. He's horrible. He's stupid. It was all cultural uh, uh, critique rather than impersonal critique, rather than political critique. And so that leaves all of this festering mess out in rural America and out in the, the, the heartland, you know, uh, people who don't live on, on the coasts, on the, on the East Coast and the West Coast and in the big cities, the whole rest of the country, it, it, they're dying deaths of despair, those are the people that Bernie Sanders talked to, and those are exactly the people who are being iced out of the Biden administration. It is for that reason that I think, just looking at things now, it is for that reason that I think that we are facing a, an extreme problem with uh, 
what lies ahead. Joe Biden has to meet the demands of the moment. And those demands are, are pretty steep. And Joe Biden does not have a history of, of meeting demands like that. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But as it stands now, with the cabinet picks that have been announced and the ones that are being leaked, I don't have a lot of hope for a, an aggressive, progressive domestic policy of the kind that we need to stop the bleeding and to, uh, you know, bring the patient back. If the patient does not come back, and by the patient, I mean the United States, the social democracy in the United States, what is going to happen? Is it somebody like uh, Mike Pence, who my mother-in-law this weekend said, oh, you know who I think is a real class act? Is that Mike Pence? Boy, he is just a really great guy. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I was just like, holy crap. These people do not see the danger behind a person like Mike Pence. They just don't see it. She's a, she's a secular humanist, basically. I mean, you know, we're cultural Catholics. We're not like, uh, you know, old, old Catholics. And uh, they don't see it. They just don't see it. But that is exactly the kind of person who is going to come along and fill this vacuum. If we don't, if we don't restore the promise of America, if we don't restore the social democracy that uh, was was the, the promise of modernity in not just in this country, but in the world. America, the United States, we were the promise of modernity. We were the promise of democracy. We were supposed to be what it is that is the alternative to despotism, that is the alternative to tyranny. And we got to live up to that. Chris Hedges ends this interview. He says, um, what springs forth from, from this moment? What springs forth is that half of this country, who to this point have been treated by ruling elites and tacitly by the liberal class as if they are human refuse, they're going to strike back. We have already witnessed them trying to do this. They have not been particularly successful. People in this country are going to start getting killed, he says. It is going to get worse, especially as the ruling elites display the kind of paralysis that I expect Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell to display. Let's hope he's wrong. Let's hope that Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell rise to the occasion and help heal this patient. boy that was a lot of stuff and a programming note I forgot to put in a trigger warning on uh, my uh, continuing uh, thematic of suicide that comes straight from Durkheim that's not um, I'm really not talking about mental health issues but I'm going to address that in post production and make sure that my uh, that we've got a, a trigger warning in there because that's just not not cool to not have that. And I, that's my bad. I should have done that. So, all right. Why, why are we here? 
And that's not the existential crisis, uh, question. That is the political question. Why are we here? Uh, it just so happens that uh, very recently, Barack Obama published the first part of his memoirs called uh, A Promised Land. And there was a really good piece in The Week, uh, which is, um, uh, I don't think of this publication as particularly progressive or particularly um, you know, something that's up my alley, but uh, Ryan Cooper wrote this amazing piece as a reflection on uh, the promised land, Obama's memoir. And he, let me just say that he, in his very lead, he says, quote, as a socialist, I have a confession to make. Back in 2008, I was a campaign volunteer for Barack Obama. I supported him over Hillary Clinton in the blah, 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 blah. So, you know, right there, he's establishing that, hey, he's actually my kind of people. Um, and so I have I, I want to listen to what he has to say. Um, this was exactly uh, my reaction Uh you know, in the 2008 election, Hillary Clinton came along and we, by default, you know, we were just sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to gonna be the person we vote for, you know, just we didn't actually know enough about her until we got through the campaign. And as the campaign went on, the way that she attacked Barack Obama, I think, drove people to him in a way that he wouldn't have garnered just on his own with his own rhetoric. She again and again uh, uh, went after him uh, using racist dog whistles and, um, and other means that was just, it was just repulsive. Uh, the inauguration for me, it wasn't this huge, you know, like, Oh, things are going to change. You know, I was just more like a, well, let's see how this goes, you know, because we were in the midst of this uh, financial crisis. And uh, even though we had the House and the Senate and the presidency, the executive branch, uh, I wasn't I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure of, of how that was going to go. I was not wrapped up in this uh, irrational exuberance that a lot of people had. Um, but I did not expect things to go as bad as they did. I did not expect... A, a, a Democrat who ran on this, you know, huge progressive hope and change and, you know, with all this uh, leftist uh, on the ground organizing, I did not expect him to be as uh, cowardly of a leader as he was. And it's that cowardice that Ryan Cooper focuses on in this uh, review of the book and this editorial in the week. And I'll throw the link up in the um, show notes. But, you know, he says that uh, The Promised Land is a maddening book. On the one hand, Obama's graceful eloquence is there, if uh, somewhat more forced than it was in dreams. Um, and his discussions of his family life and relationships with uh, staffers is genuinely warm. But on the other hand, Obama elsewhere evinces a political naivete and passivity that borders on the incomprehensible. For the sake of brevity, he just addresses the uh, bank bailout, the Recovery Act stimulus, and the foreclosure policy. So on the bank bailout, that's the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, um, Obama provides a fairly accurate gloss on how the crisis happened, says uh, Ryan Cooper, and indeed mentions that he personally had experienced 
uh, how the banks were irresponsible in his own uh, housing dealings uh, with, uh, you know, just getting an equity loan without an inspection and so on and so forth. Yet, Ryan Cooper writes, by his own account, Obama was preposterously credulous towards Hank Paulson, who was the uh, Treasury uh, Secretary, um, a holdover from from Bush. So they were negotiating the TARP during the transition while Bush was a lame duck. And Hank Paulson was, and this is Ryan Cooper's words, Hank Paulson was, let me emphasize, a lifelong Republican and the former head of the infamous Wall Street firm Goldman Sachs uh, when he came for call, when he came calling for help. And Obama just blithely went along with Paulson's plan, which naturally, given his background in politics, was basically what the banks would have written for themselves. It was what the banks wrote for themselves. He was pretty much representing the banks as Treasury Secretary. Uh, In the book, he, uh, Obama writes, with the stakes this high, I would do whatever was necessary, regardless of the politics, to help the administration stabilize the situation. If I wanted to be president, I told myself I needed to act like one. Did he? Did he act like one? Do you feel like he acted like one? Uh, Cooper continues, he says, it seemingly never occurred to Obama that responsibly addressing the crisis would have required doing politics instead of acting mag- acting magnanimous towards a conservative Wall Street banker. Nor did Obama consider the idea that he could have used his leverage to make the bailout better because Democrats would be making up most of the votes. Remember, we had the House and the Senate. Um, a former Obama fundraiser got administration economist Austin Goolsby, probably remember that name from the Obama administration, got him on the record in, a, in his book, A Crisis Wasted. And Goolsby said, we could have forced more mortgage relief. We could have imposed tighter conditions on dividends and executive compensation, Goolsby said. They just thought it would be irresponsible to use that leverage to extract concessions. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Obama thought it would be irresponsible to extract concessions from the Wall Street banks during the uh, uh, and, and the entire crisis. And that, to me, is absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, you wanted to act like a president, and you acted like a lobbyist. What he this as leverage. The bank way out of line, as we found out later. Um, they needed to be cut down to, to size, uh, and the banking system needed to be fixed, just patched. We still have these problems. They're structural. Um, it would have been fairer and better on the merits um, uh, uh, bad housing debt to be deleted through nationalization and bankruptcy rather than having to rely on huge unpopular appropriations. And he talks about this uh, uh, later, but it's important that he mentions bankruptcy here because, as you probably are aware, Joe Biden was the uh, main author and uh, um, you know, 
the, the cheerleader for the BAP CPA, which was the uh, bankruptcy bill that made it uh, so that right before all this happened, uh, made it so that you couldn't do simple bankruptcies as, as a person experiencing a foreclosure. You had to go through the more expensive uh, bankruptcies. Anyway, it made it very difficult for uh, normal people to declare bankruptcy. Um, so Obama's, this book, you know, he's, he's complaining bitterly that Wall Street swindlers were all paying themselves massive bonuses and yada, 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 but, but, but he didn't do anything about it. Um, Ryan Cooper says, uh, one feels like reaching through the pages of the book and shaking him by the collar and saying, what did you expect, man? And then he goes on to the uh, stimulus section of the book. Uh, Obama it was a lucid explanation of how the financial collapse had damaged the economy and how it might be fixed with stimulus. He says, quote, once the economy was kickstarted, the government could then turn off the spigot and recoup the money through a resulting boost in tax revenue. He notes that if the government did not step in to arrest the cycle of collapse, the Democrats would be Democrats <laughs> would be blamed for it as incumbents, which is pretty much what happened. Uh, the all-important discussion on the size of the stimulus uh, to be passed, um, which is just a couple of sentences in the book, it really deserved more space. His economic advisor, Christina Roma, mentioned in an early meeting that it should have probably been over a trillion dollars, but then White House Chief of Staff Robin Manuel, who Obama personally coaxed into taking the job, instantly snapped that that was impossible. He said, quote, there's no fucking way, that's Rahm Emanuel's words, uh, claiming that the public and conservative Democrats would not countenance such a large number. Uh, the most they would be able to get is seven, maybe 800 billion tops, and that's a stretch. Then Joe Biden in the room nodded, and apparently that was the end of the conversation. On any grounds you might care to choose, this was a brain-meltingly bad political decision. Here we have the single most important detriment determinant of the future success of Obama and his party, the strength of the economy. And they didn't even try to make a stimulus big, as big as the hole that it was supposed to fill, much less include a margin of error in case the data they were using had underestimated the size of the collapse, which they had underestimated the size of the collapse. Um, and then Obama elides numerous details about the debate. It turns out that Larry Summers, his choice for leading the Council of Economic uh, Advisors had already buffaloed Romer out of presenting her actual stimulus recommendation, uh, which her recommendation was going to be more like $1.8 trillion. Uh, so, you know, that all got, that all got axed. Um, and most of whom would go on to lose their seats in 2010 as you might remember, the two-party wave, um, had been put there by Rahm Emanuel himself. Ryan Grimm details this in his books, We Got People, in his book, We Got People. Uh, Emanuel handpicked conservative candidates from districts and tried to prevent progressives from winning primary elections. This is the DNC that we inherited. This is what happened to Bernie Sanders in 2016 and in 2020. This is the fuckery that is the Democratic Party right now. It started with Rahm Emanuel 
back then, okay? You got to kind of understand this to, to kind of appreciate where, where we're headed. Um, Emmanuel uh, then tried to create a self-fulfilling prophecy that only conservatives could win by lavishing money on his candidates and cutting off progressives. There is no better uh, uh, description of politics in Florida than that. This is exactly what happens. Amazing, good, progressive candidates get uh, completely railroaded by um, conservatives that the party lavishes money on. More on that later, by the way, because uh, Bloomberg is uh, starting to muck around in Florida politics in a big way. He's trying to uh, handpick the chair of the Florida Democratic Party, which is super freaking, we don't need that. That's, that's uncool. More, more on that later. Um, Emmanuel could have gotten more seats if he had been willing to back progressives, and many of his favorites lost, while other progressives won even with threadbare campaigns, and others came up uh, just barely short. This, and this is so important, this was the guy Obama apparently thought he couldn't do without. And Rahm Emanuel is being considered for uh, slots, uh, reportedly the trans, uh, Secretary of Transportation in uh, Biden's administration. And I heard, uh, saw on Twitter uh, during one of the, um, as I, I was playing pre-records, that Neera Tandon is being uh, put up for OMB, Office of Management and Budget. So there's that. Now, Ryan Cooper right here uh, really lays it out. He says, in short, the Democratic Party as a whole had been setting up a huge roadblock to its own success, then pointing to those roadblocks as a reason why they couldn't do anything. And if you remember, back during the Obama administration, we used to say things like, uh, you know, he negotiates with himself before he even goes to the table. Like, he, he already lays down. He goes to a, to a gunfight with a, with a spoon in his hand, essentially. When it came to the stimulus, uh, the uh, insufficient size actually did create a moderate depression, uh, which is associated with Obama's presidency. Um, because administration insiders feebly negotiated with themselves before even taking it to Congress. And then finally, he talks about the foreclosure policy here in Obama's book. It's, uh, his recollection of the foreclosure policy is, according to Ryan Cooper, straight up deceptive. Deceptive. Um, he says either Obama has no idea how his housing program actually worked or he's lying through his teeth. As I have explained uh, in detail previously, what Obama's housing policy actually did was stealthily move the massive subprime mortgage losses from banks to the government and homeowners. You know, this is you know, hooking up the, uh, the people, hooking us up as ATMs to just you know, suck money out of. The two main strategies executed by Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner were to stop a legal reform, allowing people to write down the value of their mortgage to the actual value of the property. That was the cram down. Uh, we didn't get that in, in hand. Um, uh, 
Not coincidentally, the program was also such a Kafka-esque nightmare that many did not participate. So, you know, you had this program. It was it was a disaster. It didn't do anything that it needed to do. It sucked money out of, you know, regular people, took away their homes, and, uh, and you know, we, we got the Occupy movement. You know, and essentially what you see now in, in protest movements is an extend, extenuation of uh, Occupy, which started with Obama. And you can trace uh, Donald Trump straight back to Obama. All of this is why we have Donald Trump. It is a problem of ideology, okay? At root, this is a problem of ideology. Obama and all his top staffers represented the culmination of the neoliberal tradition in the Democratic Party, which holds that the self-regulating market should rule society. You know, that, that invisible hand that moves things around on the chessboard. Um, because this is impossible, it amounts to saying that governance should be bold and aggressive if and only if it is protecting market institutions. So Obama actually did very aggressive policy, but it was on behalf of the banks. It wasn't on behalf of people. You know, it was, it was at our expense. A financial crisis means banks should get a blank check and face few or no consequences even when they commit crimes on an industrial scale, but a stimulus package should be small and timid. Healthcare reform should be hesitant and operate through market structures. Social welfare should ideally happen through invisible tax credits that require people to obtain them. This is neoliberalism. When people, you know, try to say, hey, you don't even know what that is. Yeah, you know what that is. That's what took my house away. That's what neoliberalism is. Um, he goes on in the book, and just to wrap this up, uh, Obama could have done anything he wanted during that crisis. He had the House. He had the Senate. He had a, a crisis that, uh, that called for a very aggressive policy. And like I said, he, did, he created very aggressive policy. It just wasn't on our behalf. And then in A Promised Land, in his own memoir, uh, he tries to say that uh, he, he repeats the conservative lie about the uh, New Deal. FDR's New Deal, that when a banking panic struck, FDR, quote, made a point of rebuffing Hoover's efforts to enlist help. That's a lie. That is a conservative lie. And it's been pointed out repeatedly that this is trash history. The truth is exactly the opposite. It was Hoover who tried to exploit the banking panic to get FDR to abandon the New Deal. And conversely, the restoration of growth uh, was thanks to Roosevelt's lightning fast moves to uh, fix the banks, reform currency, and uh, get people working again. And this is what we've been calling for ever since that first uh, um, disruption. Uh, letting banks get away with an assembly line production of document fraud was a severe wrenching of political and economic norms. It wouldn't have been a stretch of statutes to prosecute thousands of Wall Street crimes. On the contrary, letting banks off with wrist slap fines blew a ragged hole in the rule of law. This is how we got Trump. 
he didn't he didn't magically you know arrive and 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 game the system. This is what created the environment so that Trump could uh, take root and flourish. We are still paying for Obama's face plant on his most important task. An increasingly lunatic Republican Party took advantage of his failure. Uh, they seized control of, of Congress and eventually elected Donald Trump, who is currently attempting to overturn the election he lost. It sure seems unlikely that Obama's vice president, Joe Biden, will countenance the extreme action now necessary to preserve American democracy. There's a theme going here. There's a lot of people uh, writing in the same vein. This is exactly the same thing that Chris Hedges was saying. Obama had a golden opportunity to knit the country back together after a disastrous Republican presidency and a brief moment of Wall Street helplessness. He didn't do so because he couldn't stomach the radical action necessary to heal the nation's wounds and repair the social contract and instead invented a lot of excuses why he had to sit on his hands and do nothing. And Ryan Cooper ends with uh, the name for such a person is a coward. God, it sucks remembering all that. It just, holy wow, that is so much trauma that we all went through um, together. Uh, I watched the houses on our street uh, empty out. I live on a on a fairly small street, and we had like seven foreclosures just in my little cul-de-sac area. It was like a bomb went off in my neighborhood. Um, and people are still angry and hurt and traumatized by all of this that happened during the Obama administration. And uh, so it is with that, that, um, you know, that is how we got Trump. And uh, I want to introduce, without further ado, um, Jenny Maloff is here to talk about the uh, prescriptives, what we got to do to prevent, um, to prevent Trump from um, – Stealing this election because that's still going on. So, that's Janine's intro. And let me see if I can bring her up here. Hey, Janine. Hi, Brooke. Well, we're going to continue this discussion. Um, you know, the mainstream corporate media has been making light of Trump's clumsy attempts. Uh, to subvert our election results. But this isn't a joke, and it's not a tantrum on Trump's part. This is the product of a premeditated, illegitimate legal strategy. Make no mistake about it, the lawyers and law firms employed by the Trump campaign are, in my opinion, abusing their licenses and making a dangerous mockery of the true rule of law. This plot is also an extension of what we could say the radical abuse giant corporate law firms routinely employ in order to maintain the power of the rich, well-connected, corporate, and yes, indifferent, especially in the face of COVID. So now we're faced with an actual coup that the mainstream corporate media is ignoring. They're preferring to talk about Biden's cabinet, but we can't afford to ignore it. The fact is Trump could still steal a second term. We have to remain vigilant. So here, the Justice Report on Progressive News Network 
we've exposed what can only be called as this treason, and we scooped a lot of the big guys. So I'm going to start first with an article that was written by our friend Marjorie Cohn, um, who is Emerita Professor of Law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law, San Diego. Uh, this was uh, published in Jurist as well as Truth Out, and she basically talks about what Trump's and the plan of his lawyers actually are. So he's trying to overturn the election results. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about voting rights, but let's face facts. Voting rights are, are more than just being allowed to cast a vote and to have it counted. It also means to have the results respected and obeyed. So right now, you know, basically Joe Biden's won uh, a pledge of approximately 306 electoral votes. And that's 36 more than the 270 he needs to win. And he received over 5 million more popular votes than Donald Trump. But Trump keeps saying that the election was stolen from him. So this is Trump's stealth plan. And Trump didn't come up with this just on his own. All right. He, you know, when you see Mike Pompeo saying he's going to have a second term, keep in mind, Mike Pompeo is a, an Ivy League law school graduate, and all these people, they, they, they know what they're doing, all right? So the step-by-step -step process has probably been dreamt up by not only the law firms that Trump employed, but also people like Mike Pompeo. So Trump started attacking, according to Marjorie Cohn, the election, and we saw it months before the election actually took place. Um, he started by basically making totally unsupported and unsubstantiated charges of massive voter fraud, especially from mail-in ballots. And he knew that the majority of Democrats were going to vote through, through a mail-in ballot because of COVID. And why was he doing this? Obviously, he wanted to create doubt about the integrity of the entire election process. So he told his supporters to vote in person on election day. And, you know, on election night, he did have a lead at first. But then as the mail-in ballots were counted after election day, Biden clearly won. So he said, but he was setting the stage for this coup. And one of the first things he did besides alleging massive voter fraud and telling this big lie that comes straight out of Mein Kampf and Hitler's theories, came, next came the frivolous lawsuits, okay? And these were, and these were uh, brought by several very large legal firms, and they were engineered to create a public perception that voter fraud was enormous. And the GOP attorneys knew that these lawsuits that they were bringing had no legitimate legal merit or standing in court, but they did it anyway. And most of the time, these lawsuits in these, these um, key states where it was a closer count, they, they were basically alleging technical violations of voting procedures, whether it was something like, uh, you know, perhaps they didn't sign, their signature didn't look exactly the same way, or maybe they didn't put it in the proper envelope, whatever. And even, even if some of these charges were meritorious, which they're not, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. So why file all these frivolous lawsuits? Well, it's not a tantrum. It's a dirty strategy. Again, it's meant to steal the election. If enough of the public not only believes that the election 
that Bi- the election of Biden as president-elect was dirty, but they also articulate that theme loudly and repeatedly, then Republican-controlled state legislatures would have enough political cover to feel confident, uh, basically, to appoint electors to the Electoral College to replace the slate that was mandated by the public vote results. So in essence, these GOP legislators would have that political cover to subvert the public vote. And this theory has been offered by several people, Robert Wright from the Clinton administration, um, our friend journalist Greg Palast, who's written on uh, voter suppression extensively. But that's what this is about. This is about creating legal cover in these, in these key battleground states so that GOP-controlled legislatures will feel confident and safe enough to throw out the result of the public vote, vote <clears throat> by claiming that they couldn't come to a conclusion to appoint electors, and then they would appoint their own electors that would be loyal to Trump. And that's what this is all about. The stalling of the certification of these votes in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Arizona. Again, that's to buy time so Trump Confederates can implement this dirty scheme. And Trump's lawyers are trying to delay certification. This was reported by the Wall Street Journal earlier in this month. Um, Trump's legal team filed litigation, and this was as of, uh, of the 18th of November, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. And the idea was to prevent state officials from certifying the vote count. And judges in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona dismissed the lawsuit as being frivolous and having no merit. Uh, State judges in Michigan um, refused Trump's request, and again reported by the Washington Post, to delay the certification of the vote count. Judge Timothy Kenney rejected a petition of two Republican poll watchers to delay ballot count certification in Detroit, because, and the judge called the misconduct allegations, quote, not credible. The plaintiff's request for outside audit of voting tallies would cause a delay, okay? And that's what this was about. They were basically delaying the, the idea of having an outside audit or delaying um, the ballot count certification would keep things, would basically delay things past a deadline, and that was the plan, all right? There are two deadlines, basically, and one of the deadlines is, um, I believe, December 8th, where they have to ask, and I'll I'll get to that in a minute, where they have to uh, basically uh, certify who the electors are going to be, and then I believe it's on the 14th, December 14th, that the, the Electoral College meets and you know, finishes this. Um, so if the electors aren't chosen by the mid-December vote, then it's up to legislatures, and that's the plan. I mean, do you honestly believe Ivy League-trained attorneys like Mike Pompeo are that incompetent? No, they're just that corrupt. And Judge Kenney, uh, according to New York Times, characterized these accusations as, quote, rife with speculation and guesswork. And Judge Kenney went on to say, Quote, it would be an unprecedented exercise of judicial activism for this court to stop the certification process, end quote. Law firms hired by Trump also withdrew 
even though this was a lot of money for them. The law firm of Porter, Wright, Morris, and Arthur withdrew, as reported by the New York Times, from a federal lawsuit they filed in Pennsylvania on Trump's behalf. And they did so because they 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 became scared that they were being used to undermine the integrity of the electoral process. Well, that's their claim. I suspect that they just didn't want to risk their law licenses. Because when you file frivolous lawsuits and when you file um, allegations that these lawyers know are false, they're risking their license. You can't lie to the court. And then also uh, a week later, the law firm of Snell and Wilmer also withdrew uh, from representation of Arizona's Republican National Committee. Wendy Weiser from the Brennan Center for Justice quoted as saying, quote, these law firms have been under tremendous pressure. It became clear these claims were baseless, and they were part of a broader campaign to delegitimize the election, and she told ABC News. Um, and then to add to it further, the New York Times reported that on November 12th, a joint committee of the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, um, confirmed that, that the election results were reliable and valid. The committee concluded, quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised, end quote. On November 17th, CISA director Chris, Christopher Krebs also denied that there was any manipulation or problems in the election systems, tweeting, quote, 59 election security experts all agree in every case of which we are aware these, claim, these claims either have been unsubstantiated or are technically incoherent, end quote. And then later that day, Trump fired Krebs. Even Trump advisor Carl Rove, dirty, Mr. Dirty Tricks himself, wrote in November 11th in the Wall Street Journal an op-ed that Trump's challenges, quote, were unlikely to move a single state from Mr. Biden's column, and certainly they're not enough to change the final outcome. Now, we have Attorney General William Barr, who's aiding and abetting this attempted coup, and he basically changed the Justice Department's longstanding ban on voter fraud investigations before an election. And on November 9th, Barr empowered federal prosecutors to investigate, quote, substantial allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities. Um, there were 16 federal prosecutors that were placed in charge of monitoring the election. They wrote to Barr. There was no evidence of any substantial voting, voter or voting irregularities. The DOJ official in charge of voter fraud investigations quit in protest, Rich, a man named Richard Pilger, um, and this was reported by the New York Times again. Um, but the fact that the DOJ was authorizing investigations, the whole idea behind that was to cast doubt on the um, the validity of the election itself. And that cloud of manufactured doubt adds another layer of duplicity to further this coup. So we have to look at what the Constitution says, all right, because this is what Trump's people are counting on. Um, the purpose behind Trump falsely alleging fraud from mail-in mail ballots, along with Barr going along with it, is to, again, create doubt and, and then the next step would be for state legislatures in those key states to use that public doubt to subvert the will of the voters 
by twisting the intent of Article 2 in the Constitution in U.S. Code Title 3, Section 1. So Article 2 says, quote, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. U.S. Code Title 3, Section 1 requires that electors be chosen on election day. But here's the kicker. When a state has, quote, failed to make a choice on that day, then, quote, the electors may be appointed on a subsequent day in such a manner as the legislature of such state may direct, end quote. And under Section 2, and this is the reason for the frivolous lawsuits and the unnecessary delay they've caused, under Section 2, okay, this is what they can do. So basically what it is is you create the doubt, and then they it delays uh, any assignment of electors so that the legislatures in these states that are controlled by the GOP can come in and, and, and create and basically um, appoint their own electors that would be Trump loyalists. And that's the whole strategy right there, okay? And this is a premeditated abuse of the courts. As far as I'm concerned, the law firms and the attorneys that have participated in this should be subject to disbarment They're, because basically they have, they have filed a bunch of false charges knowingly. Okay, there's no evidence, and, and they know this. Um, so that's what this is really about. And it, it goes beyond that even, okay? We know about Mich in Michigan, for instance, there were two GOP leaders that um, not only met with Trump, but they, they were filmed enjoying complimentary Dom Perignon at Trump's hotel in D.C. on the same trip. Champagne that cost $500 a bottle. So there's a lot of skullduggery going on here, but that's what this is really about. You block certification or you delay certification, and then the legislatures in these key states that are controlled by the GOP can throw out the will of the people, subvert the vote, throw out the electors, that, the slate of electors that won the election that were assigned to Biden, and then they can assign their own Trump loyalists. That's what this is all about, okay? So this is, now the one thing Trump's legal team forgot is that the states that he's looking at, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Wisconsin, um, a lot, these states ha allegedly, they have laws that are intended to protect the vote, okay? Um, oops, sorry about that, Mike. Computer just so uh, there's you know they're they're trying to break the law there too so um, but what's coming up right now and that's why they're coming down to this deadline um, there's a thing called safe harbor for the electoral college and the deadline's approaching okay so states have to count their electoral votes and settle all election disputes by December eighth which is the safe harbor deadline. And if they can't do that, then the state legislatures could come in and appoint their own, you know, their own electors. Because on December 14th, the Electoral College members from each state meet and they actually elect, that's the day the Electoral College actually votes. So that's what this is about. Now, there's more to it than just that. On January 6th, the vice president will preside over the opening of certified results in a joint session of Congress. If there are competing state, if there are competing slates of electors, 
in some of these states. And Pence could, he might decide to recognize a slate signed by the governor, according to Lawrence Lessig. But if both a senator and a member of the House representative signs an objection, then the Senate and House would vote on whether to uphold the objection. And then the House would probably vote to sustain it. But if the Senate votes to overrule the objection, the slate signed by the governor would be counted. Um, and this gets another, this gets very, very involved, okay? There's another dirty scenario. If, let's say, after all of this, neither Biden nor Trump have def definitively secured 270 votes, electoral votes. And this is, right now we know Biden has 306 votes, but they're pledged. They actually haven't been assigned yet. But if, so if, if this trick works, and they, neither one of them finalizes those pledged electors, then the 12th Amendment kicks in. And that provides the House, the House of Representatives would decide who becomes president. And that's bad for Biden because each state in the House of Representatives only gets one vote in that type of vote. And because there's more red states and blue ones, Trump would win. Then there's the final dirty strategy. This is why Bush v. Gore still matters. Let's say we get past all of this, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. Just recently, Brett Kavanaugh adopted a position that state legislatures are, quote, unconstrained in their selection of electors, regardless of the popular vote. So Kavanaugh is saying, it doesn't matter what the popular vote says, the state legislature can override it and subvert the will of the people, subvert the public vote. Now, that theory has not gained majority support, okay? And you think, why is Kavanaugh saying this? Well, obviously, he's a Trump ally, but he allegedly based this theory on a theory um, espoused by Chief Justice William Rehnquist in Bush v. Gore. And then, but there's another case, too, Chiafalo v. Washington, and this is the... Um, Faithless Electors case. And this was a unanimous Supreme Court decision that was decided this year. And it said that, quote, electors are not free agents. They are to vote for the candidate whom the state's voters have, choos have chosen, end quote. And so you think, okay, that's safe then, right? Kavanaugh trying to go radical on it won't work. But all bets are off with this Supreme Court. They just could change it. Then you have Trump, who is making last-minute firings of key people in his administration. Anybody who might blow the whistle, the one guy from CISA. He fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper because Esper refused to support um, Trump wanting to deploy active-duty military personnel against Antifa and anti-racist protesters. And you know Trump wanted to use the Insurrection Act to call out active-duty military on, on U.S. soil, and Esper said, you can't do that. So we have all this insanity that's going on. Okay, so that's part of, from, from um, Marjorie Cohn. Then we have a piece by Robert Kuttner, and he's really thinking, okay, will the Supreme Court overthrow, um, overturn that as the election result? And Harvard Law Professor Michael Klarman um, is basically, you know, talking in this article. He clerked for Ginsburg when she was a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. 
And Clarman wrote a book from Jim Crow to Civil Rights, Supreme Court, and the Struggle for Racial Equality. And he was asked, do you think the Supreme Court is enough of a regard for its own credibility and respect for basic democratic norms um, to not overthrow the election? And Clarman says, the court isn't going to overturn the election result. The election isn't close enough for any of Trump's litigation to affect the result. What the president wants is to stop the counting of votes in Pennsylvania while demanding that voter, vote counting continues in Arizona, but there's no legal controversy about the votes. They were received before election night. Um, so Clarman is saying, you know, we need to worry, but not that much. And then it gets a little deeper still. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, we talked about Kavanaugh's opinion on, you know, faithless electors. But just last night in Newsweek, James Crowley wrote a piece titled Trump Allies Call for Nixing Certification Picking Electors After Compromised Pennsylvania Election. This was a new resolution. It was proposed by Pennsylvania <clears throat> House Republicans. And what it would call for is state leaders to uh, revoke or withdraw certification of the presidential election results and appoint the Electoral College delegates themselves. The resolution posted Friday and was signed by 26 representatives, quote, declaring the results of statewide electoral contests in the 2020 general election to be in dispute, end quote. <clears throat> Even though Pennsylvania Secretary of State um, Kathy Buchvars on Tuesday certified the results, they were signed by the Pennsylvania governor, um, and it confirmed that Joe Biden was the winner in Pennsylvania. There was a similar resolution signed by four GOP state senators as well. Um, Republicans control both uh, the state Senate and House of Representatives in Pennsylvania. Now, leaders had said that they, they didn't have any plans to overturn the results, but this resolution called for Congress to, quote, declare the selection of presidential electors in its commonwealth to be in dispute. And State Senator Doug Mastriano is really integral to this. Um, he posted a thread on Twitter saying, quote, this power was given to the state legislature for the purpose of safeguarding the appointment of our president, specifically contemplating corruption and ensuring that the people are not disenfranchised through a corrupt election process, end quote, which is really ironic um, because, once again, did Mastriano or any of the Republicans offer a shred of evidence? No, they did not. This is all based on a pack of lies, and that's all it is. So every attorney that's involved in this, in theory, is lying to the court, and they should lose their license to practice law. Um, but Mastriano was actually retweeted by Trump. And, uh, you know, this is what, what we're talking about here. Um, you know, basically, these are GOP lawyers, and, and if this was done, say, during a court trial, it would be akin to suborning perjury, all right? This is not much different. They, you could argue that the, the GOP and their attorneys and these legislators are suborning perjured statements regarding the veracity or, or the, the validity of election results in a purposeful attempt to subvert the public vote and just give Trump a second term. That's what this is all about. There is no guesswork here. Um, and, and, and that's the whole scheme in a nutshell. 
basically discredit the election by continually lying. Secondly, filing frivolous hordes of frivolous lawsuits to slow down everything and try and get the certification process in these battleground states that Trump lost to either be delayed or, or deny certification to create enough doubt so that the state legislatures in these key states that are controlled by the GOP can claim, gosh, you know what? We couldn't come up with electors, so the state legislature will appoint them. Bingo, we, we put Trump back in office. And as a secondary plot, you've got Kavanaugh trying to claim that states can have total autonomy, total control over who gets appointed as electors, no matter what the public vote was. So that's what we're dealing with now. So this is not a joke. This is real. And the mainstream media should be dealing with it because by now it's patently clear the GOP has no intention of ever running a fair election. Their total contempt for democracy itself is despicable and frankly, as a political entity, they are beyond redemption. But this has been happening for a while. The GOP has been treading towards this since the Southern strategy in the 1970s. Trump is not an anomaly, but the logical end game. And the GOP, they need to fan the flames of racism and misogyny along with a host of other associated bigotries to prevent any sort of cooperative democratic movement. And so this attempted coup by Trump is not a joke. It is not, um, it, it is not something that he's just throwing a tantrum. This is real. And every attorney that's participating in this should face disbarment charges because basically they're lying to the courts. They produce zero evidence of any fraud or impropriety regarding the election itself. So that's what we have, and that's my report for tonight. So the way that we can uh, address this is through a a process of... uh, uh, We have to... to, People need to contact the GOP-controlled state legislatures and give them a choice they can't refuse and tell them, you either respect the public vote or we'll not only have you voted out of office, but we're going to pursue charges against you because a lot of these people are attorneys to disbar them. They're only being this bold because too many people don't know what to do. They don't have a right to do this, actually. But they're they're basically banking on the idea that the average person so confused that they don't know what to do. So they need people at state legislatures need to feel public pressure to respect the results of the public vote. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jenny Moloff, with the Justice Report. That is uh, uh, fantastic stuff, and we will you know keep an eye on this, and we will know in the next few days and weeks to come how this. Uh, works out <laughs> we'll see yeah yeah all right all right thank yeah, you so fighting. much i have bye-bye okay guys uh that's it for us this week we will see you again next week and don't forget to tune in on thursday nights at 8 p.m for the environmental justice report hosted by janine Moloff. and uh, we'll see you again next week
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.